Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, Kat's been on a real survivor kick lately, and that's kind of a holiday tradition for you, isn't it? You, you dig into the old survivor episodes and uh, binge them. Either survivor or crime shows or revenge movies. What would you say is your favorite? Really in the holiday spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes sense because I think as far as survivor goes, we're all just trying to survive the holidays. This time of year is a real feast or famine when it comes to joy. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, yay! All these things are nice, and then also, like, I would like to sleep until June. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we thought this would be a fun thing to do, as we're all trying to survive the holidays. Take a look at some of our favorite survival stories. It's a collection I'm calling "Surviving the Holidays." World War One was in full swing in 1916, and. Um, <laughs> That's a happy thought. Yeah. (laughs) The Germans had rolled out a new terrifying state-of-the-art weapon in the U-boat. Now, that's weird because I always thought the U-boat was like a World War II thing, but but no, it it actually debuted in World War I. Okay. The U-boat was an abbreviation for the name Unterseeboot. Underseaboat. Which literally means exactly that. And these monsters trolled the ocean wreaking havoc in the Atlantic. On September 5th, 1914, the HMS Pathfinder was sunk by SMU-21. The Pathfinder became the very first ship to be sunk by a submarine using a self-propelled torpedo. So far, I'm confused about why you think I would like this story. Well, hopefully your your attitude will change as I get into this a little bit more. Okay, I know that you love war. I love history. (laughs) We've discussed this, uh, and that includes... Military history, of course. I won't get into it, but I think it's very interesting that you're talking about weaponry. <laughs> okay. Okay. During World War I, 373 German submarines were built. 
Throughout their terrifying reign on the high seas, U-boats sank 10 battleships, 18 cruisers, and uh, many more smaller vessels. This, of course, just during World War I. They also destroyed 5,700 merchant and fishing vessels. This totaled over 11 million tons of, uh, of vessels and killed about 15,000 sailors and an undetermined number of civilians. When you think about events like this and ships being destroyed, you know what you never think about? The fact that probably that's just litter now. Yeah. So the U-boats roamed far and wide on the Atlantic during World War I, not just off the coast of Europe. In fact, in 1916, a merchant marine ship that was flying Allied colors was sunk by a German U-boat off the coast of Antarctica. Somewhere between the uh, Deception Island and Elephant Island in the South Shetland Archipelago. And you might recognize the name Elephant Island. That became the desolate refuge for British explorer Ernest Shackleton and his crew that same year. Shackleton. 1916. That's after their ship, the Endurance, was lost in an ice pack. So it's a pretty remote, foreboding area. And the U-boat sunk this merchant vessel... And it was believed that everybody on board, the entire crew, went down with the ship. The cargo, of course, was lost. It was thought to be carrying medical supplies and food to the Western Front. So, this is 1916. Two years pass. It's now 1918. The incident had long since stopped dominating world headlines. And a civilian craft was traveling in the area when they noticed a single person standing by himself on an uninhabitable tidal island. And that's weird on so many levels. First, a tidal island is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, an island that is exposed at low tide only, but submerged at high tide. This, this tidal island was located off the northwest coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's just one guy standing mm-hmm. on an island by himself. It's very surreal. The question, of course, was how did this guy end up standing on a tidal island? I would think the question would be, am I hallucinating? Well, yes. They're so close to the Antarctic. The ship drew near to the tidal island. They launched a rescue boat and retrieved the man. Once on board, he told them his name was Edward Allen Oxford and that he was a British imperial citizen. He claimed that he had been on that ship that was sunk by the German U-boat two years prior. However, the odd thing is, he insisted that it had only been about six weeks since the ship went down. What? Yeah, he said, I've been on, I've been on an island for six weeks when my ship was torpedoed. I spent six weeks on the island. Now... The man wasn't dressed in a way that one would need to dress in order to survive in Antarctica for six weeks, let alone two years. Obviously, this created a great deal of confusion among the crew. How did he manage to survive for so long in such harsh conditions? And why did he claim only six weeks had passed and not a full two-year period? And how did he end up on an island that was only above water at low tide? Right. Strange story. He insisted that he had walked over to the tidal island at low tide from a larger nearby island moments before he was discovered. And he insisted that this other island was warm and tropical and had plenty of wildlife and vegetation that kept him alive. What? And no such island existed. We're talking about right off the coast 
of Antarctica. So this just added to further the confusion of the situation, and he continued to insist that only six weeks had gone by and that he had survived on a tropical island. Until one day, when the tide was low enough, he walked across to the tidal island, and he said it got a lot colder, and then he saw this ship coming. Although no one could explain how he survived, his story was so unbelievable that they just declared him insane. Right, but still, I mean, regardless of what he's saying, how did he survive? That's weird. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. But rather than try to answer a difficult question like that, they said, nah, he's crazy. And they institutionalized him in a, um, in a mental hospital in Nova Scotia. And he spent a good deal of time at this convalescence facility. Now, while he was there, he met Mildred Constance Landmeyer. And they fell in love. Aww. She was a nurse with the Canadian Army Medical Corps. He was there for 18 months. Are we sure? Oddly, he said it was only a weekend, but no. No, he was there for 18 months. And when he was released, he and Mildred got married. And they moved to West Quebec. Oxford had a cousin that owned a dairy farm there. And uh, he helped his cousin with farm chores. But it turned out that he didn't really like it. He wasn't much of a farmer, so he later became a forester, working in the Canadian lumber camps. This required him to travel a great deal, and he was often away from his beloved Mildred, uh, sometimes for several months at a time. But his love for her was strong, and he wrote to her constantly. And he would write to her to not only express his undying love for her, but he would also extensively record his memories from the time that he was stranded on what he still insisted was a tropical island somewhere off the coast of Antarctica. And he never wavered in his story and his belief that it was true, and there was never a contradiction in any of his descriptions of, ex of his experiences there, and in all, he wrote over 200 letters to his wife containing various aspects of this incredible island that he lived on. So how did this story come to light? Recently, inside the house in Quebec that they once resided in, the current owner discovered his letters. And so they started researching this story, to see if there were any hard facts that could back up what this soldier had written in his letter. Right. And it wasn't long before they did, in fact, discover official imperial records that were well over 100 years old that confirmed that an Edward Allen Oxford was on a merchant marine ship, and indeed that ship was torpedoed. And indeed, he was recovered nearly two years after the ship went down in the Antarctic, and he was declared insane. Wow and institutionalized in Nova Scotia. There's no rational explanation for how this guy survived as long as he did in such a deadly environment for as long as he did. And why did he say it was only six weeks? Now, that could have been because he was slowly going mad. You know, he sure. lost track of time or whatever. That would also explain his belief that there was a tropical island nearby. He could have been hallucinating, mm -hmm. clearly understandable. Sure. Nobody has been able to explain how a man torpedoed in the Antarctic in sub-zero temperatures with no food and inadequate clothing survived for two years on his own. It's a mystery. My source information, mysteriesunsolved.com and Wikipedia. 
that was super interesting. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes. It's like if what he was saying was true, it's like he stepped into some sort of a portal or something. Or maybe it was a time shift. <laughs> maybe it was a, a period of time that he somehow managed to get back to when the island or that land mass in the Antarctic was actually in some kind of a subtropical uh, region before the polar shift. Yeah, that's what that's. Yeah, I'm going with that one. Oh, wow. I, I mean, my guess would be that somebody had helped him like he was on a ship or something and he had been kept warm and clothed and such for a period of time until he was then deposited on the tidal island. I guess maybe. I mean, that's physically possible. Seems a little bit unlikely, far more unlikely than a time portal. Sure. Religion or the Kapu system is polytheistic. Pele is the goddess of volcanoes and fire and the creator of the Hawaiian Islands. They call her Madame Pele or Tutu Pele. Poly, polytheist? Is that, is that what you said? I, I said polytheistic. Is that not no, right? No, no, no. Yeah, polytheistic. That, do you remember the comedian Emo Phillips no. from a long time ago? Mm-mm. He was uh, weird but brilliant, and uh, he, he was the king of the um, surreal one-liner. Kind of like Stephen Wright? Kind of, yeah. Very okay. much like that, but just weirder. He said, um, monotheism is a gift from the gods. <laughs> anyway, yeah. there's a belief that Pele can change into human form, and that's reported that she likes gin. So uh, it's really? said that you can appease the goddess of volcanoes by tossing a bottle of gin into just, the volcano. Just pouring your Tom Collins out over, right. the, over the rim. Speaking of which, we went to dinner last night and I wanted something a little spicy because we were at a Mexican restaurant, but I, I didn't know what to order. So I got a Tom <laughs> Collins with jalapeno syrup. Yeah, gin and jalapeno syrup. It was not bad. It really was surprisingly good. I liked it. You should name it. You've invented a new cocktail. Have I? Okay, I'll think about it. Maybe I'll call it Pele. Anyway, in November of 1992, Paramount Pictures was in the process of making the Sharon Stone thriller Sliver. Do you remember that movie? I do. Yeah. The IMDb page called it an erotic thriller, but I've already said that Sharon Stone is in it, so Mm. erotic would make it kind of redundant. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm. I'm sorry. Anyway, the end of the movie had to be recut a few times because test audiences didn't love the ending, and one of those endings involved a helicopter apparently flying into a volcano. So Paramount needed a volcano, and location scouts identified Kilauea in Hawaii, one of the most active volcanoes on the planet, and they said, this is it, this is what we want. So they sent director of photography Michael A. Benson and a photography assistant Chris Duddy with pilot Craig Hosking to capture the necessary footage. Wow, that's a dangerous shoot. Indeed. These three had all worked together several times before, and they described themselves as being kind of like a family. As they flew over the cone, Chris took out the offering of gin and tossed it in. But the fierce winds coming up out of the cone kept the bottle from going in, and it crashed into the side of the cone. Mike 
chuffed Chris because the opening is like two miles across. <laughs> yeah, and you missed it. <laughs> and he was like, seriously, dude, what? <laughs> anyway, uh, Michael said, it's okay, she'll get the idea. Meaning Pele would understand that they tried to get her her nip and that would be good enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The three flew over the cone to get the shots and then landed to preview the footage. They decided that, that what they got wasn't long enough and they wanted another shot. So they went back into the air over the rim for the second time and the pilot and then his passengers felt an RPM decrease Mm -mm. just before the helicopter warning signals started going off. Oh, my God. Were they over the the open cone? of? Oh, my God. Uh, And they were experiencing engine failure. They had no more gin. They had no more gin, though I'm guessing they wish they did. (laughs) This happened so suddenly that Craig didn't have time to radio for help, and the helicopter crashed through the plumes of steam and noxious fumes into the Pu'o'o vent on the hot crater floor and sheared into two pieces. Oh my God. Why have I not heard about this? Incredibly, all three survived. Wow. Though there was... Incredible confusion, as you can imagine. And they didn't know, because of the fumes and such, that they had landed inside the crater. The helicopter missed a steam vent by a couple hundred yards, Mm. and the pilot had narrowly missed a lava pool nearby as well. The electrical system was shot, and they were unable to radio for help. That's one of the reasons why I really am uncomfortable with the idea of flying in a helicopter. In a plane, I can entertain perhaps this misguided notion that if I lose engine power, I can still coast in. There's always the chance that you can coast in. Tom Hanks style? Well, hopefully not Tom Hanks style. But I mean, Sully, not Castaway. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. okay, Yes, absolutely. Sully, not Castaway. But I've seen video footage of helicopters going down and you're spinning all the way down. It's just Anyway, the crew is in the midst of a cloud of VOG, which is volcanic smog, which, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, is 99% water vapor, carbon dioxide, and sulfur dioxide. The remaining 1% is comprised of hydrogen sulfide, carbon monoxide, hydrogen chloride, and hydrogen fluoride. Not good things. No, no, no. So their eyes are stinging, their lungs are burning as they try to breathe, and they realize as their feet are burning and they look up that they are inside this crater. The men started to climb the rim, but the interior wall, the higher you get, is steeper. It's kind of like a a bowl, so it's a more shallow incline at the bottom and toward the top is more steep. Like an exponential curve. Yes, well, let me ask you this. Did uh, did anybody know? Did they fl- file a flight? I mean, were they there by themselves with nobody knowing that they had crashed? Was People knew where they were flying. I People see. knew the job that they were doing that day. But it happened so quickly they weren't able to radio for help. That's correct. Holy shit. Now, while this interior wall is very steep, it's also made up of volcanic rock, which is very sharp and crumbles very easily. So each step that they made threatened to cut them and also create a rock slide. Chris had climbed ahead, but he got stuck at a point in the crater that was nearly vertical, Mm. and the thick gases obscured their view. So they were having a really hard time keeping track of each other. Craig 
decided that he was going to return to the helicopter to try to get the radio to work and he, because he realized that climbing out seemed very unlikely. So the three were now each on their own. Chris ahead, mm. Michael in the middle, Craig back at the helicopter. Now at the bottom of the crater... Craig is suffering from a lack of oxygen because that's where all of these noxious gases and fumes are settling. He found a small hill that when he stood at the top, there were gusts of fresh air that would come occasionally so he could breathe. But he didn't know when they were coming or how often. So he's like trying to breathe, getting garbage air, trying to breathe, getting garbage air, trying to breathe, oh, fresh air. Mm. And once he got that fresh air, he would bolt back to the helicopter and try to get this radio to work. But he could only stay there for as long as he could hold his breath or as long as he could stave off passing out. Oh, my God. So it's back to the fresh air, back to the helicopter, back to the fresh air, back to the helicopter. And eventually... He was able, using the wiring from the camera battery, to get the power back to the radio and tell rescue workers what had happened and that they desperately needed assistance. (laughs) I bet you heard that one. (laughs) So he MacGyvered the shit out of that radio. Yeah, he did. I mean, literally, there was stripping of wires and he... I think that... (laughs) I think we're living underneath a a family of elven cobblers. (laughs) All right, we're just going to pretend that the tapping is the sound of bubbling lava. Okay, that's okay? a great idea. Every time you hear it, think it's lava. It's like we're hit, we have our own Foley artist on duty. So, oh, lava's getting closer. Craig was able to yell to the other guys that help was coming, but that he was unable to breathe. And then they didn't hear anything else from him. So that was kind of scary. Yeah, for sure. Because the the fog is so thick that they can't see each other. They're barely able to hear each other. And now they're not hearing Craig at all. That must have been terrifying. I can't even imagine the level of sheer terror right. they were all feeling. So finally, rescue workers arrived. Over four hours Ooh. at this point, Craig had been in the crater and... Eventually, they were able to lower the helicopter enough so that Craig could scramble aboard. Oh, my God. But the other two men, obscured by the dense volcanic fog, or vog, were left behind. Plus, they weren't able to see what had happened with the helicopter. They still hadn't heard Craig. They thought that Craig had expired and that the helicopter just took off. Chris, at this point, still clinging to the side of the crater wall above, and Michael has come to rest on a ledge below, and they are hoping to hear the helicopter return. Unfortunately, the weather kept getting worse. The wind and the rain kept the helicopter from returning for hours. And then it's night. Now, the light from the lava below keeps the fog kind of illuminated, and so there's this weird, eerie light everywhere, but never nice light, never comforting light. No, you're going to die light. Michael can hear the gurgling of the lava. Their throats are closing up because of the gases. It's not a good situation. So by midday on Sunday, 
That's right, the next day, Chris had decided that he was going to die either way. So he might as well try to climb the rest of the way out. And if he dies that way, at least he's doing something. Right, keeping his mind off things. Right. So as he's trying to climb out, the rescue team has returned. They're wanting to do a land retrieval at this point. The helicopter thing they decided wasn't working. So they've sent people up in their outfits, you know, their, their snazzy little rescue outfits. They are taking ropes and kind of just tossing them down the side of the crater, hoping that maybe they'll land near one of these men. They're fishing for cinematographers. That's exactly what they're doing because they can't see them and they can't really hear them. So they're just hoping. They're just tossing. Try over under that ledge. That's where cinematographers feed. (laughs) So at one point, Chris can see a rope that they've tossed. It's about 10 feet from him. And he knows that he doesn't, he's not able to climb over to it. So he's yelling. He's like, over to the left more, over to the left. They pulled up the rope. In addition to the rope that they're tossing down, they also have like this rescue package, um, you know, with water and Mm -hmm. a blanket and such that they're, they're, tossing down so they toss that down who needs a blanket in the mouth of a volcano actually at night it got very cold it did it did huh it's uh, all around not great basically mm. Mm. so they toss that down and it falls past michael he thinks it's his friend chris oh, plummeting no. to the bottom of the crater Chris can see a rope that they've tossed and it's like six feet from him. Mm. And so he's like, all right, well, I'm going to try to jump for it. And he tries to jump for it just as they're pulling it back up. It's awful. No, uh... You can imagine it's terrible. So he's like, all right, well, whatever. So he starts climbing and he looks up and he can see this shaft of light kind of illuminating what he thinks is path-ish. And he's like, I think I can climb this way. So he starts climbing and he's making progress. Unfortunately, because again of the rock, he has to like shove his Mm. arms into this broken rock gravelly stuff. And his whole arms are getting, you know, cut up because he's shoving his arms. That's the only way he can get any traction. It must be like climbing over um, a, a huge pile of broken glass. It's awful. Eventually, he gets to the top and he's yelling to the rescue workers like I'm here help me launch myself over you know the lip of this crater Um, and there's no response and so he's like all right so he figures out okay if I jam my arms in like this and if I haul myself up this way I can I can launch over so he is able to get up outside of the crater he's there and there's no rescue team but was there a bottle of gin because he really could have used it after Mm. that (laughs) No, no. The rescue team, unfortunately, had had to evacuate because the weather got so bad. (laughs) So he's there, but he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know where he is. So he just starts like tootling and he finds himself back at the rim of the crater. He has just walked in a big circle and then he's like, "Okay, well, try to go this way. And then he notices that there are orange cones in the distance and the rescue workers had left kind of a path of orange cones. So he follows the cones down to their camp and he finds where they had, you know, set up camp the night before. But there's no one there because, again, they had had to evacuate. But there was a bottle of water and 
an oxygen tank. So he gets to the bottle of water and you can imagine what it must feel like to not have been able to drink anything for a day when you're in the middle of a volcano. No big deal. But he's unable to drink water because his throat is so swollen and closed up from the fumes. So he grabs the oxygen tank and he heads. And he's just trying to find people at this point. This is 27 hours after he entered the crater. Chris is eventually spotted by a helicopter, and he tells the rescue team that Michael's still alive and inside the crater. Unfortunately, again, the extreme weather means that they can't make another rescue attempt that day. So Michael, now believing that both of his friends are dead, not knowing if anyone is coming for him, spends a second night, cold night, inside an active volcano. It must have been really hard for him to hold on to any hope at this point. And hold on to any rocks true at this point yeah Mm. so because the previous attempts had failed at rescue the production company hired another helicopter to try to rescue michael so the next day this is 47 hours in the volcano holy shit michael heard a helicopter he eventually is able to see you know the shape of a helicopter through the fumes and he can hear a pilot yelling Don't do anything stupid. I'll be back in 15 minutes. (laughs) So I can imagine that felt a lot more than 15 minutes, by the way. Um, And the helicopter returned. But because of the noxious fumes, the helicopter can only hover over the opening of the cone for 20 seconds at a time. So it can scootle over, drop down a basket, which is kind of like a net basket. Mm -hmm. It's a basket made of net. Mm -hmm. Drop down the basket blindly, wait a bit, pull it back up. No one? Okay. Move the helicopter away from the opening of the vent. Oh, no. Now they come back. They drop down the basket blindly, wait a bit, see if maybe someone hops in, pull it back up. No person. Okay. Scootle away from the opening of that. They had to keep doing this over and over and over again until eventually the basket was close enough for Michael to get inside. Can you imagine if they dropped it down and then pulled it back up and then they dropped it down again and it's further away from where he was mm-hmm. and he's watching this and he's going, no. Yeah, it's like that rope thing all over again. All over again. Well, at one point they had dropped the basket down and it caught on a rock and they thought that was the weight of oh, Michael. Oh. So they pulled it up. I'm sure they were just as nervous. Well, maybe not just as nervous, but they were very nervous. So they were pulling it up all excited that they had got him. And no, nope, there's no one inside. Mm. At this point, you don't even know if he's alive. And they're just dropping down this basket. Yeah. So they pulled Michael out of the VOG just in time, because at this point, he is on the verge of death. After they landed, he was reunited with his friends, who he thought had perished already. You can imagine what that was like. And he was sent to Hilo Hospital's intensive care unit. As he was being lifted to safety, Michael said, I turned back to Madame Pele and I said, you didn't beat me. You didn't get me. Which gives me goosebumps a little bit. But I mean, to be fair, they... Failed with the bottle of gin. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. she was pissed. Now, all three men still work in the film industry. Michael Benson, though, chooses to no longer capture aerial footage. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame him. I'm with you on that one, Michael. 100%. 
Did they ever make this into a movie? Because this is great stuff. I don't know. I mean, these guys make movies. Right. You'd think it would be kind of top of mind. You'd think so. Craig, the pilot, still does aerial work for the movies. Apparently, he's like one of the most sought after helicopter pilots for the film industry. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, that is a great tale. I got my information from Film Stories, Tampa Bay Times, The New York Times, Variety.com, and episode 11 of I Shouldn't Be Alive. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer all right so it's my turn yeah here we go quote the first half hour of the hour-long flight from lima to pucalpa 
was uneventful. We were served a sandwich and a drink for breakfast 10 minutes later as the flight attendants began to clean up. We fly into a huge thunderstorm. According to this account that I uh, found in Reader's Digest, quote, suddenly daylight turns to night, lightning flashes from all directions. People gasp as the plane shakes violently. Bags, wrapped gifts, and clothing fall from the overhead lockers. Sandwich trays soar through the air, and half-finished drinks spill onto passengers' heads. People are screaming and crying. I see a blinding white flash over the right wing. I don't know whether it's a flash of lightning or an explosion. I lose all sense of time. The airplane begins to nosedive. From my seat in the back, I can see down the aisle into the cockpit. Oh my gosh. My ears, my head, my whole body are filled with the deep roar of the airplane. Over everything, I hear my mother saying calmly, Now it's all over. We're falling fast. People's shouts and the roar of the turbine suddenly go silent. My mother is no longer at my side, and I'm no longer in the plane. I'm still strapped into my seat on the bench at an altitude of about 10,000 feet. I'm alone, and I'm falling. My freefall is quiet. I see nothing around me. The seatbelt squeezes my belly so tight that I can't breathe. Before I feel fear, I lose consciousness. What? Is this a real thing? This is, the re- this is a real thing. The day after her high school graduation, 17-year-old Julianne Kopke fell from the sky nearly two miles, still trapped to her airplane seat, into the Amazon rainforest, and she survived. Oh, my God. Now, this was suggested to me by one of our freaks, uh, Lisa, from uh, Washington State, I believe. And it was weird. We talk about coincidences a lot. Mm -hmm. I just finished reading this woman's autobiography. Oh, really? The book is called When I Fell from the Sky. Here is Julianne's story. She grew up in Lima, Peru, before moving at 14 to the Peruvian rainforest where her parents, Maria and Hans Wilhelm Kopke, established the Panguana Ecological Research Station. Oh, wow. Which is really cool. After two years of accompanying them on research trips to the jungle, Julianne returned to Lima to complete uh, her high school. Mm -hmm. On December 24th, 1971, Julianne, again 17, and her mother boarded a flight in Lima bound for Pucallpa, the city with an airport closest to Panguana. They were going to visit her father for Christmas. Now, in her own words, and again, this comes from Reader's Digest, I spend my vacations in Panguana and my school days with classmates in Lima. My mother preferred to fly earlier, but a school dance and my high school graduation ceremony are on December 22nd and 23rd. Um, I begged my mother to let me attend. She said, all right, we'll fly on the 24th, Christmas Eve. The airport is packed when we arrive in the morning of Christmas Eve. Several flights had been canceled the day before and hundreds of people now crowd the ticket counters. It's about 11 a.m., interestingly enough. Mm. We gather for boarding. My mother and I sit in the second to the last row on a three-seat bench. I'm by the window as always. My mother sits beside me. A heavy-set man sits in the aisle seat. Mother doesn't like flying. She's an ornithologist and says it's unnatural that a bird be made of metal. (laughs) (laughs) So the first half hour of the hour-long flight from Lima to Pucallpa is uneventful. We're served a sandwich and a drink. As the flight attendants began to clean up, 
we fly into this thunderstorm. Now, according to an article I found on CNN, it was actually um, fairly recent, I think uh, three, three or four years ago, she recounts more of what she recalls from it. The airline, Lansa, L-A-N-S-A, had already lost two aircraft in previous crashes. Julianne said, we knew the airline had a bad reputation, but we desperately wanted to be with my father for Christmas. So sure. we figured it'd be all right. The flight was supposed to last last for less than an hour. And for the first 25 minutes, everything was fine. Then we flew into heavy clouds and the plane started shaking. My mother was very nervous. Then to the right of me, I saw that bright flash and the plane went into that nosedive. My mother says, this is it. An accident investigation later found that one of the fuel tanks of the Lockheed Electra had been hit by a bolt of lightning and had torn the right wing oh, wow. off the plane. So she said, we were heading straight down. Christmas presents were flying all around the cabin. I could hear people screaming. As the plane broke into pieces in midair, Kopke was thrust out into the open air. Quote, oh. suddenly there was this amazing silence. The plane was gone. I must have been unconscious and then came to in midair. I was flying, spinning through the air, and I could see the forest spinning beneath me like green cauliflower, like broccoli is how I described it later on. Because she was falling into the friggin' Amazon jungle. Right. Ooh. I think that the idea that it was quiet mm. is the most yeah. upsetting for me. She lost consciousness again while she was still falling. She fell nearly two miles. 10, how 000. long does it take to fall two miles? I mean, there's the math's got to be there. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Siri, how long would it take to fall two miles? Here's what I found. So one source says about 40 seconds. Yeah. Uh, the other source says about 60 seconds. 50 it is. Uh, so, yep, that seems wow. right. Okay. Wow, that's fast. So she's falling for two miles into the jungle canopy and survives with only minor injuries. 91 other people aboard the flight died. She was the only one to survive. Oh, that's a wonderful slash terrible thing. She said she's not a spiritual person and has tried to find logical explanations for why she survived. Quote, maybe it was the fact that I was still attached to the whole row of seats. So that like protected her body? Yes. And it was rotating so much like a helicopter that maybe it slowed the oh. fall to the ground. Oh, God. I bet she threw up. Also... The place I landed had very thick foliage, and that might have lessened the impact. In any case, she survived with only minor injuries. Her collarbone was broken, her right eye swollen shut. She was suffering a concussion and had had some uh, gashes on her arms and legs. I imagine you'd get a concussion. Yeah, I got mm. a concussion from headbanging once. So that's <laughs> hardly falling two miles out of the sky. Was that at the Pantera concert? No, it was at a headbanging contest. I didn't realize that that was officially sanctioned. <laughs> Did you win? No. Oh, God. Amber got second place. So she regains full consciousness on the floor of the Amazon jungle early Christmas morning. Wow. She said, I didn't wake up until about nine o'clock the next morning. Her watch was still working. So I must have been unconscious the whole afternoon and night. When I came to, I was alone, just me and my row of seats. Now, her mother was strapped next to her. That seat was empty. She told Vice Magazine, I had a serious concussion, so I couldn't sit up. My eye was swollen. I was lying beneath my seat. 
and I wasn't strapped in anymore. I could see a bit of forest, but also a bit of sky. I knew that I'd survived a plane crash. The concussion and the shock only let me realize just basic facts. Right. She couldn't find the strength to get up, so she just laid on the floor of the jungle for about 12 more hours before attempting to seek help. I mean, I would imagine that your body has just experienced so much. It's not letting you intentionally. It's saying, whoa, you need to stop. Just lie here for a bit. Yeah. She said, I feel dizzy again. I lie exhausted on the rainforest floor. After a while, I managed to rise to my knees, but I feel so dizzy that I immediately lay back down again. I try again. Eventually, I'm able to hold myself in that position. I touch my right collarbone. It's clearly broken. I find a deep gash on my left calf, which looks as if it's been cut by a rough metal edge. But strangely, it's not bleeding. Did that have something to do with the intense spinning in the air, too? Like... I know maybe when I, they're separating like centrifugal, blood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a giant centrifuge. Uh, it does not say. She said she got down on all fours and she was searching for her mother. I called my I called her name, but the only other voices I could hear were the voices of the jungle. Oh my goodness. Now she was lucky in many ways, not the least of which the fact that she had lived in the jungle for years with her parents. And her parents had taught her how to survive in the jungle. You're going to want to get that leg gash covered. Yeah. She said that that she was working really hard to extract that knowledge from her brain-rattled head. She knew that she knew what she needed to do. Right. But she was having a hard time extracting the information from her concussion-fogged head. Suddenly, she said, I'm seized by intense thirst. Thick drops of water sparkle on the leaves around me. I lick them up. I walk in small circles around my seat, aware of how quickly you can lose your orientation in the jungle. I memorize the location and the markings of one tree to keep my bearings. I find no trace of the crash near me, no wreckage, no people, but I discovered a bag of candy that had fallen from the plane, so I eat a piece. Oh, wow. Rescue planes and search crews were unable to locate the crash site initially. Kopke was stranded in the jungle alone. That's terrifying. The Amazon is nothing to fuck with. Yeah. And she doesn't have any idea how deep into the forest no. she is. I mean, she only has a general idea of how long they've been flying for. So they must have been about, what, halfway? You know, there's there's so much unknown there. That's terrifying. She's 17. Plus, you don't know where that candy came from. You're just guessing that it came from the plane. <laughs> That's creepy. <laughs> She remembered that her father said if she got lost in the jungle to find a creek and follow it because that will lead to a stream and a stream will lead to a bigger river and that's where you'll find help. Of course. So the day after the crash, she found a creek and started to wade downstream. It was pretty tough going. The only food she had was the candy and uh, some insects that she uh, Mm -hmm. found along the way and her wounds became infected. Of course. The cut on on her arm after a few days, she said she could feel something was inside of it. Yeah. She said, I took a look and it was full of maggots. Yeah. I was afraid I'd lose my arm. But they actually would keep it clean, right? Isn't that a good thing? (sighs) Because rather, wouldn't they keep the infection from taking hold? I don't know if that's... Because they eat the, the... The dead stuff, right? I know that there's some sort of medical treatment that involves that and or leeches. Ugh, why? Why would you have to bring that up? <laughs> it's funny to me that you're okay with maggots, but leeches bug you. <laughs> That's gross. 
Look. So, and she she said that the uh, the hole in her arm was about the size of a one euro coin, and there looked to be about like fifty maggots in there. Holy shit! And she didn't know how that was possible that so many could get crammed in there. So she continued to travel downstream. She uh, and she discovered some wreckage from the plane. She found some of the crash victims. Oh, jeez. Quote, I found another row of seats with three dead women still strapped in. They had landed head first and the impact was so hard that they were buried almost two feet into the ground. I was horrified. I did not want to touch them, but I wanted to make sure that my mother wasn't one of them. So I took a stick and I knocked a shoe off of one of the bodies. The toenails had nail polish on them and I knew it could not have been my mother because she never wore nail polish. So she continues through the rainforest. She wades down the jungle streams that are infested with crocodiles. Of course. And piranhas and devil rays. Also great for keeping infection away. At one point, to avoid the piranhas, she um, created like a makeshift raft out of some, some logs and pulled her way down the stream. Oh, wow. She was quite ingenious. She said, I tried to follow the rivulet closely, but there were often tree trunks lying across it or dense, dense undergrowth that would block my way. But little Little by little, the rivulet grows wider and it turns into a stream, which is partly dry, so that I can easily walk beside the water. Around six o'clock, it gets dark, and I look in the stream bed for a protected spot where I can spend the night, and I eat another candy. On December 28th, my watch stops for good, so I try to count the days as I go. The stream turns into a larger stream, and then finally into a small river. Now, it was rainy season, and there was barely any fruit to pick, and I've eaten all my candy. I don't have a knife to use to hack palm hearts out of the stems of palm trees, nor can I catch fish or cook roots. I don't dare eat anything else. Much of what grows in the jungle is poisonous, so I keep my hands off what I don't recognize, but I do drink a great deal of water from the stream. So she's trying to count the days, but she's not really sure how many days it's been. She thinks it was December 29th or 30th, either the 5th or the 6th day. She hears a buzzing, a groaning sound that immediately turns her mood into euphoria. It's the unmistakable call of the Hotsin, a subtropical bird. I love the Hotsin. We've talked about the Hotsin. They're amazing. This bird And they ne- smell like butt. I bet the smell was great yeah. for her. It's a subtropical bird that nests exclusively near open stretches of water where people settle. At her home in Panguana, she heard that call often, so she knew she was getting closer to a large river. See, that's really interesting, knowing that they only settle near to where people settle. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. So she picks up the pace. She follows the sound. Finally, she's standing on the bank of this large river, but there's nobody in sight. She says she can hear planes in the distance. And she's thinking that maybe they're search planes that are looking for wreckage or, mm. or survivors, but they just kept the sound just fades away and it gives her the impression that she's just being abandoned, that they've given up. Oh. It was a feeling of total despair and anger. But she did not give up. Where there's a river, there were people. There had to be people close by. She continues her trek. She encounters caimans, which are alligator like reptiles. Yeah. She sees devil rays. She sees plenty of piranha. Sure. Each night when the sun sets, she looks for a safe place on the bank to try to sleep. Mosquitoes, of course, are just terrible. About 10 days into her ordeal, she's just floating in the water in the evening. How is she still alive? This is incredible. She finds a gravel bank that looks like a good place to sleep. So she dozes off for a few minutes. And when she awakes, 
she sees something that she knows doesn't belong there. It, it's a boat. And she thinks that she's hallucinating. Sure. So she closes her eyes and looks back and it's still there. It's a boat. She swims over and she touches it. She says, only then can I really believe it. So she finds a trail. She follows this trail. She's very weak. It takes her up a hill and it takes her a, a few hours. When she gets to the top, she sees a small shelter, but no people. It's a shack in the middle of a forest. She's certain that the owner of the boat will emerge at any moment. This is her hope, and you know, but it gets darker, and so she spends the night there alone. The next morning, at least, uh, like inside the shack. Yes. So that's nice. That's a yeah, yeah, a, a relief in some ways. It's I imagine got to be something. She wakes up. There's still nobody there. It begins to rain. She stays in the shelter. She wraps herself in a uh, in a tarp. She finds a can of diesel, and she takes the diesel and she pours it on her maggot wounds. To kill the maggots, oh. which is something that, again, her father had taught her. That's incredible. To do. I keep saying that, but honestly. As twilight approaches, she hears voices. She thinks she's imagining them, but the voices get closer. Three men come out of the jungle and they stop in shock. And she says, I'm a girl who was in the Lanza crash. She said this in Spanish. My name is Julianne. Forestry workers. Discovered her on January 3rd. Oh, my gosh. Thir- uh, 11 days in the rainforest. 11. 11 days. And she delivered. She was delivered to safety. Uh, again, 91 people, including Julianne's mother, died in the crash. She was the only survivor. She was reunited with her father, where she learns more information about the plane crash. Mm-hmm. And uh, as time went on, she discovered that her mother had survived the impact of the crash but was so badly injured um, that she couldn't move, and she died days later. Investigators found the cause of the crash was caused by intentional flight into hazardous weather conditions. Oh, no. The years, and again, this was 71, they have not dampened the horror that she feels. In a recent CNN interview, she said the events of 71 still haunt her. She said the memories are especially clear when she's confronted with current airplane disasters. When sure. when a plane goes down, it, it just, it must cause so much traumatic reliving of emotion. Yeah. She says, it horrifies me. I only hope it all went quickly for those on board. And um, her book is called, When I Fell from the Sky, and you can find it pretty much everywhere. I, I, I got the ebook on Amazon. Wow. Um, I also quoted uh, interviews with her from Reader's Digest, CNN, and Vice Magazine. Julianne Kopke. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
there are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. All right, lady, what you got for me? Anne Hodges and her husband rented a house in Oak Grove Community in Alabama. It's November 30th, 1954, and 34-year-old Anne is at home with her mother. They're just chillaxing, and she's having a little nap. She's got an afghan on her sofa, and she's all covered up with, I assume that it looks like the one on Roseanne, oh, you the, know. The, with the little with the flower, knitted flower. Floral, yeah, yeah right. those, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I have no idea what her blanket looked like, but that's what I picture. So... Anne's having a snoozle on her couch when suddenly there arose such a clatter. (laughs) I'm thrilled that I got to use that phrase because usually it's only once a year or so I get to use it. Well done. In moments, the house was engulfed in a cloud of dust and Anne was in pain. She'd been hit by something. So the dust started to settle and Anne and her mother spotted a rock in their home. A doctor and the police were called to the home, and the insider article that I read said that the mayor showed up with the police chief, and they discovered a hole in the ceiling where the rock had crashed through. Why would the mayor uh, come to the house? I don't know. It's a big deal. I guess there's not a lot going on in Oak Grove in 1954. All right. Fair enough. But uh, the idea that the, the men showed up and discovered the hole in the ceiling, like the women hadn't thought to look up (laughs) is just like, Uh, mm, I don't know. Well, again, it was the 50s. Sure. So then a local geologist was called to the scene to determine what had Anne been struck by. Turns out it was a meteorite. Holy shit. No, just for a moment, let's pause (laughs) and think about that. Mm -hmm. This meteorite has been bouncing around in the universe Mm. for billions of years, probably. And yet, at the end of its journey, it singles out this poor woman Mm -hmm. in Oak Grove. Is that the name of the place? (laughs) Okay. Well done. What are the odds of that? (laughs) Yeah. The meteorite lit up the sky in parts of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. Hodge's neighbors reported seeing a bright reddish light crossing the sky like a Roman candle trailing smoke. The space debris then made its way into Anne Hodge's home and attacked her after first ricocheting off her console radio. Wow. So, as you can imagine... It was a bank shot. (laughs) As well. Yep. 
Word quickly spread about what had happened. And when Anne's husband returned home from work, he found a crowd of people at his home. Anne told the Associated Press, we had a little excitement around here today. (laughs) Hodges was soon hospitalized, though. And despite the fact that she had a massive mark on her side, she wasn't seriously injured. That's crazy. That Afghan must have had some kind of magical protective power. I agree. Was it a flak Afghan? The rock was the Silicaga meteorite. Estimated to be about 4.5 billion years old. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Upon the entry into the atmosphere, the meteorite fragmented into at least three pieces. One fragment is believed to have impacted somewhere near Childersburg. The McKinney fragment, which was found the next day on a nearby farm, and this piece now dubbed the Hodges fragment after the lady that it attacked. Now, most meteorites found by humans on Earth are in the range of size between a golf ball-ish and Mm fist-ish. The Hodges chunk looks to be about the size of a Chipotle burrito. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Moving at approximately 200 kilometers per hour or 120 miles per hour, Hodges' meteor would have slowed a bit as it came through the atmosphere, which worked out really well for Anne, and then crashed through the roof, which again lessened the impact. And then it first hit the radio. (laughs) All good news for Anne's hip. Don't don't forget about the Afghan. And the Afghan. Which I think the fact that you put an extra vowel sound in there is really interesting. Afghan. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just I just think it's interesting. It's one of your many quirks that I find endearing. <laughs> Mary Beth Prozinski, the collections manager at the Alabama Museum of Natural History, where the meteorite is now on exhibit, said, if Anne had been lying under the radio, it would have broken her leg or her back, which I think is a weird way to put that. Yeah, like, right. You could have said, you could if, have said if, it, it had, if it had hit you directly. Right. Or if it had been like two feet over or, but you know. In, but, you in know. Oak Grove, flying under one's radio is a common practice. Is it? Apparently. I don't know. So Ann Hodges became a bit of a celebrity. At first, she was really uncomfortable with that. But you know how it goes. If you see an opportunity, sometimes you just got to seize it. So she had a bunch of photo shoots. She appeared on the cover of Life's Magazine in 1954. Uh, in December, with an article entitled, A Big Bruiser from the Sky. (laughs) She was also invited to go to New York City to be on Gary Moore's show, I've Got a Secret, where the panel had to guess what it was that made her a notable figure. Interesting. Do you remember that show? I do remember that show. Gary Moore also hosted uh, To Tell the Truth, which was a very popular They're pretty similar shows, Very similar, yeah, very similar. I always thought they were so weird, though, because everyone always wears gray on those shows. And well, it's, it's just, just because it's bl- in black and white, sweetie. They didn't have color TVs widely available at the time. And it was cost prohibitive for many television studios to shoot in color. Oh, my God. Anyway, now, of course, at this time in history... Americans were a little skittish about things coming from the sky, right? Sure. Uh, There was concern about nuclear war. Uh, There were uh, rumors of flying saucers. Not everyone believed that this was a meteorite. So the Air Force took custody of this object to verify that it was indeed a meteorite. Well, meteorites are valuable. Did she get it back? I'm getting there. Okay. All right. When it was time to return it. 
who to return it to. Well, it's not as if the government would ever steal anything from anybody. Right. So she got it back, right? Well, Bertie Guy, the Hodges' landlord, thought that the meteorite should be returned to her Hmm. because it smashed through her roof. Well, she's got a case there. Ann Hodges said, I think God intended for me to have it. After all, it hit me. (laughs) The case was eventually settled out of court with Guy getting $500 to let Ann Hodges keep the meteorite. Unfortunately, this court case lasted a bit. So by the time it was settled, the sheen had kind of gone from the event and the couple was unable to find a buyer for the meteorite. So the family used it as a doorstop for a while before donating it to the Alabama Museum of Natural History. With the uh, understanding that the Alabama Museum of Natural History would cover their legal fees from the gotcha. case. Okay. Meanwhile, Julius Kempis McKinney, who discovered the fragment on the nearby farm mm-hmm. while driving a mule-drawn wagon, sold the one he found for enough money to buy a house and a car. Yeah, yeah, wow. And he didn't even have to get hit by it. Nope, get himself a new team of mules. That chunk, by the way, can be found now in Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. We might have seen the McKinney farm chunk. I can't wait to go back to the Smithsonian. I know. Last two times we were in D.C., the museums were closed because of the pandemic. I'm just saying, we were going to go on a cruise for our anniversary and we canceled it because things are all up in the air and kind of weird right now. And um, I I stress out easily. Um, But, you know, maybe a little tootle to D.C. (laughs) wouldn't be a terrible idea just for a couple days. Not a bad idea at all. I'm just saying. We could go somewhere. A little crazy with, uh, you know, we're, we're moving again to a new apartment in a few weeks. And we just now launched the new podcast, The Shallow End, and it's hard. <laughs> it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. So when a vacation ends up being more stressful than yeah. restful, mm-hmm. what's the, what's the point? Anyway, uh, that was a bit of a tangent. Back to the meteorite. Do you need a segue to get back? <laughs> yes, please. Because you asked people to uh, to make you a little segue sweeper. Mm-hmm. And Sam, who lives in the UK, uh, he obliged. That was done by Sam from Bristol, UK. Oh my gosh. He was introduced by his lovely partner, Kaylee, to the Box of Oddities and has powered through and is completely up to date on them. Well done. And, and well done on the uh, on the Segway Sweeper as I well. love it so much. You did another one. You want to hear the other one? We can wait until the next time okay. we actually have a Segway. All right. Do we need another Segway now? <laughs> I'm so excited. Anne was a pretty quiet private person. And according to Prodzinski, she didn't like having all the notoriety. And she ended up developing some pretty serious health problems. On top of that, the meteorite created problems between her and her husband, Eugene. Now, Eugene really wanted to make a lot of money off of this meteorite. And the inability to do so, I guess, made him mad. Like, I don't know Hmm. exactly how you can blame one or the other for that. It's just, it sucks, sure. But uh, eventually their marriage collapsed. Oh, no. It turns out being struck by a meteorite wasn't great for Anne. Good news for the meteorite, though. Uh, Since... (laughs) Anne was the only person who's ever been hit by a meteorite and lived to tell about it. The meteorite has been appraised at over a million dollars. Wow. Now, 
This is kind of fun. Thursday is Asteroids Day. Is it? Or Asteroid Day, I guess. And asteroid, I mean, if I understand this correctly, asteroids and meteorites are essentially the same thing, just in different spaces. So like an asteroid generally will hang out near the sun, but then the chunks of it that come off and make their way to Anne's hip uh, will be <laughs> meteorites. Hmm. So, I mean, I think I'm, I think that's right. It would be amazing if we had the ability somehow to zoom out and chart the uh, the path, the voyage, right? That that meteorite, like zoom out both in space and time. Yes, yeah, and see where it all started, and, and be it, like, it started here, yeah, and it was and zoomed then, around oh, here, and then the and then Earth then, was formed, and then, and then it, <clears throat> fuck yep. you, Anne. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, earliest claim of a human being hit by a meteorite actually comes from 1677 manuscript, which tells of a friar in Milan who was killed by one. Oh, wow. Although uh, it is disputed whether or not that is actually true because it comes from a text called Zeus Displeased. Um, so it's hard to really oh, okay. take that well, for... Zeus was cantankerous. You know. And finally, very ironically, across from the Hodges' home was a drive-in theater called the Comet Drive-In Theater. <laughs> and it had a neon sign depicting a comet falling through the sky. With an arrow pointing to Anne's hip? Well, there was no arrow, but still. It's, I'm just it's... saying, maybe the meteorite thought it was a road sign. <laughs> I got most of my information from Smithsonian, from Insider, Space, and, of course, Wikipedia. That is a fascinating tale. And as you told it, I started to remember seeing a picture of her years ago. Did you come across that picture? Of- I don't know which picture you're okay, referring hey, let me to. Let see if I can find I it. I have seen many pictures of her. With, her. with the bruise on her thigh? I have, yes. There's one where she's laying in bed and she's yeah. kind of holding up her um, floral house dress. Mm-hmm. And yeah, is that the one that you're talking about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was still lying under that Afghan, too. (laughs) Memory serves me. No, I mean, it shows this unbelievably big, deep bruise on her uh, Mm. thigh. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. I got a pretty sturdy bruise the other day from bumping my arm into a door frame, (laughs) um, which Uh happens constantly because I have no concept of how much space I take up. Sure. Hopefully that doesn't lead to uh, the demise of our marriage. I hope not. That was a lot of fun listening to those those stories again. Um, and, and it gives me hope that we all can survive the holidays. Right? Aunt Carol's house isn't going to be as bad as a volcano. Although maybe sometimes. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, good luck. Love you. Here's to surviving your holiday, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com 
Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.